0: It is St. Thomas Sunday or St. Thomas Saturday in our case. Um, The Sunday after Easter is frequently referred to as St. Thomas Day because it is the day that we commemorate uh, Christ's appearance to Thomas. And it happens, uh, according to scripture, eight days uh, after the resurrection. And uh, let's not get all tangled up and whether that was meant Sunday or Monday I believe it meant Sunday for a couple of different reasons but the whole idea of the eighth day for Jewish people and for early Christians was eighth day meant new creation it meant resurrection so if you've ever wondered why eighth day books is called eighth day books that's why and uh and that's what this icon up here is all about the icon of the Anastasis and if you can't read uh Byzantine Greek, uh, you're like almost everybody else on the planet. But up here at the top, it says Anastasis, uh, which means um, resurrection or the resurrection. Um, But I think St. Thomas is especially important for us here, not just here at Wheatland, but for us in this time in the 21st century, because he's called Thomas the Doubter. And, uh, And I don't think Thomas was a doubter because he didn't want Jesus to be alive but because he couldn't bear the disappointment that he might not be alive. And in that way, I think Thomas is a lot like us, afraid to try, afraid uh, afraid to risk being wrong, afraid to risk uh, being disappointed again. And Thomas is also like us because he was unwilling uh, to give up his rational thinking about things. People didn't come back from the dead back then, in the same way that they don't typically come back now. We act as if people were just popping up out of the ground left and right in the ancient world. But Thomas is like, this isn't, this isn't normal. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with you guys. So again, he's a lot like us, unwilling to hope because it's just too hard when things don't work out. And sometimes I think many of us, uh, it's just maybe better to be a cynic because we can manage our despair rather than to hope beyond hope and be crushed again by that disappointment. That disappointment. We celebrate doubting Thomas in spite of his, the name that he's given because he really is someone of great faith. Unwilling, as I said a minute ago, to give up his rational way of thinking. In this sense, he may be like us. Thomas is the first saint of the secular age. Like Thomas, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe in spite of our doubts, and in the midst of our doubts. The philosopher Charles Taylor, I've mentioned this quote from him before, uh, he, is, he wrote a giant, almost unreadable book called The Secular Age, or A-Secular Age, and in it he makes this great point, we are all Thomas now. We are all Thomas now. It's just the way the Western world lives and breathes. So the Gospel of John keeps this story of Thomas alive and the themes from the Gospel of John, such as the fleshy life and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, are revisited in the little book called 1 John, which was also written by the same person, the disciple of Jesus. So for the next several weeks we're going to go and explore the book of 1 John and I hope you'll find yourself reading it maybe over and over during these next few weeks. Uh, It won't take you very long. I encourage you to uh, to read it several times. Now the title for this series that we're gonna do is called Fully Human, Love, Sin, and More Love. And I know I should have had it written down for you. Um, I asked Nate if he thought that the title was too long. He said yes in that way that Nathan can say something you don't wanna hear and and still be nice about it. So I told him to say that he thought that the title was great or I would fire him and he, he then confronted me about abusing my position. And, uh, and as I started to defend myself, I realized when you start defending yourself, it's a sure sign that you've done something wrong. So, um, But in all seriousness, uh, I know that the title is long, and it's maybe not the prettiest uh, title that I could have come up with. Um, but here's the thing. The title is actually an overview of the book of First John. It's really kind of a summary of what goes on in the title, or in the book, rather. And if it's a little clumsy, I hope it'll help you hold on to the important realities that the book of 1 John holds. So let me pray as we continue. O oh Lord, we are grateful that you speak to us in the words of the disciple that Jesus loved. Make us people like John, who love like Jesus. Amen. Now, this little book, five chapters, is a letter that reads a lot like a sermon. 1 John was written towards the end of the first century AD. Some think it was written as late as the 90s. Some even think maybe into the second century, like 110 AD. We don't know for sure, but one thing that we do know is that when it was written, the author was thinking about the same ideas that are in the Gospel of John. We don't know which one came first. Either way, they share many of the same concerns. The book was written roughly 50 to 60 years after Christ's resurrection, and it provides us with a picture of what life was like for a church less than 100 years after Jesus walked the earth, less than 100 years after the resurrection, and still under the weight of the Roman Empire. I think First John is a perfect book for Eastertide. It's an Easter book because it's about life in the resurrection. It is about human life, which leads me to the title. The first phrase of the title is fully human, and that points us to the fact, according to John and to all of the earliest Christians, Jesus was a real human person who died a real human death. But what's more, he returned to life and he appeared in the flesh. To highlight this, let me go back to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, to words we all are familiar with. In the beginning was the word, the logos, Christ, Jesus prior to his incarnation. If we can say the phrase prior to his incarnation, which we can talk about later, anyway. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. If you've been at Wheatland for any amount of time, you've heard me say this several times, so I'm going to say it again because I think it's a big deal, and it's a reminder to us of why John is writing this gospel and writing the book of First John. It has to do again with Jesus fleshy human life. When verse 1 verses 14 or chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh, we are told that Jesus became the very material, the stuff that human beings are made out of. Of course, that's not really what John is saying. He overstates his point to drive it home and to drive home the reality that Jesus was, and according to the apostle Paul and the gospel, still is a human person. The Word who lived forever in eternity past is also human. So Jesus enters creation. He subjects himself to the limits of creation. And in doing that, Jesus vindicates creation He says once again, without words, but through his incarnated human life, once again, he says, it is good. An echo of Genesis 1. And then in the opening lines of 1 John, we hear something very familiar, something very similar, I should say. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So let me return to the ridiculously long title once again, Fully Human, Love, Sin, and More Love. Jesus, the fully human one, is who John says that they saw and heard and touched. This is the word of life. John is saying, he is testifying, we have seen him, we have touched him, We have heard him. John could have gone on and said, we have eaten with him. We were shocked and surprised by him. He kind of made fun of us a few times those last 40 days. I don't know if he did that, but John could have gone on and filled it out, but John is highlighting the humanity, the real physical life of of Jesus. He's expressing that Jesus is the fully human one, and he is expressing the depths of God's love by entering creation. The incarnation of Christ is not a trick that God pulled on his people. It's not some last-ditch effort to fix things that humans have screwed up. It is the first, it is first and foremost an expression of the love of God. The incarnation, Jesus a human person who eats and drinks and walks the countryside and lives in relationship with other people is fully human. And this is love. And John borrows from himself when he writes these two books, as I've mentioned before. But if you're attentive, you will notice that John is also borrowing, as I hinted at a minute ago, to the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the similarities aren't, are not limited to that word beginning, but also the themes of light and life and other Ideas, and John plays up on these a lot. It's not a stretch for us to recognize that love is a matter of creation. God loves us in the act of creation, but even more powerfully, God loves us through creation. As I've already said, it's in the incarnation of Christ that God's love is revealed to us. God with us, God incarnate, God become man. It is in the created realm that God saves us. This is, is an important idea because I think in the 21st century, uh, since we can be together and not even in the same room, hello, 15 minutes later people, or 15 seconds later people, um, even though we can be together and not in the same room, we need to remind ourselves that it is in the physical creation in which God brings us salvation. As a matter of fact, the people of the New Testament and certainly the Hebrews of the Old Testament, the notion of salvation apart from their physical bodies makes no sense at all. It's, you're speaking some kind of gibberish. So again, it's in this created realm that God saves us. Genesis 1 reminds us that creation is good. And it culminates at the end of that chapter with that phrase, God saw that it was very good. Other shared themes between Genesis, John's Gospel, and 1 John in the letter are ones that I've already mentioned, like light and life. But let me draw your attention to one thing that John says. I, I want to say that John proclaims twice in the fourth chapter. In, chap, in ver, chapter 4, verse 8, and verse 16, he says, do we all know what I'm getting ready to say? Let's all try together. God is love. <laughs> I was hoping that some of you had your Bible open and were looking. Anyway, so let's do it one more time, because we're not really one of those churches where I make people repeat me. So uh, here we go. One, two, three, God is love. He says it twice, two different times. And here's the funny thing, Christian writers, thinkers, theologians, not all, but some feel compelled to conditionalize that sentence. And they'll say things, well, yes, God is love, but John doesn't let us do that. And we're going to talk about those verses in a few weeks, so we don't have enough time to do it here because I've just gone off the script. Um, But let us not place conditions on something that God doesn't place conditions on. Is God more than love? Uh, Yes, sure. Sure. But we can rest assured of two things. Whatever God does and however God acts is predicated on love. And second, God wants us to know this. And the way that he communicates this fact is through Jesus, the incarnated Son of God. The most important thing that God wants us to know about God is found in Jesus, the Son of Man, the human one. So 1 John begins and it ends with love. And this love is displayed in the incarnation. I've said that about eight times now. I hope you remember that. Jesus' love is fully human. Jesus is a flesh and blood human being. And as Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood or pitched his tent. And I think of it like this for the artist to have the capacity to enter into what he has created means that the relationship between the artist and his creation is a critically personal relationship. And this is very much the case with Christ. And this is very much the case that John restates, both in his gospel and in the book of 1 John. So we've talked about fully human. We've talked a little bit about love. Let me mention just for a few moments the notion of sin, and we will talk more on this as, as we go through the weeks to come, but I want us to note this fact, and this is why I think the gospel of, or why the book of 1 John is really valuable for us. After the resurrection of Jesus, after the defeat of death, after the full and complete abolishment of sin, people still sin. You've probably noticed this for yourself. Sin was dealt with in a decisive manner on the cross, but we're still having to face that daily reality that we often do what we do not want to do, as Paul says in Romans. Sin still hangs on us human beings, even Christian ones. Now, sin is more than just bad actions or bad thoughts. It is a power. It is a force. And again, it's been dealt with decisively through the cross and the resurrection. And, and there's much to talk about that for another week. But today I want us to talk about when we sin. And I suspect all of us, I, I, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think there's any of us in here who, who are going, dude, I don't really need to hear this right now. I mean, I've waited this far and I'm not going to check out, but right now I'm, I'm done. We're probably, I, I seriously doubt any of us are there, right? We all recognize that we still do this. But I think another way, another expression of Jesus' love for us is the fact that he's given us a way to deal with simple sin, and that's confession. And I would draw your attention to 1 John chapter 1, starting in verses 8, 9, and 10. There's a Greek word that's used there for confession. It's, uh, it's a fun word to say, homologeo, um, and I may be pronouncing it horribly, Devin, we'll talk later. Um, but, uh, but homologeo. And uh, to put crudely, the word homologeo basically means to say the same thing. Confessing our sins is not just naming what we've done, but more importantly, it means saying the same thing about what we've done that God says about what we've done. This means accepting God's opinion of our sin and God's opinion of us. Confession is agreeing with God that what we have done or left undone, sound familiar, is sin. And it needs to be forgiven and removed from us. In 1 John 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purge us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We lie to ourselves if we say that we do not sin. But if we homo our sins, if we confess our sins, if we attest to them, if we say the same thing about them that God says, then it says we are forgiven and we are cleansed. And as I said, there's more to say about sin later on but I'm just looking at this group thinking you guys could use this right now. So I was, I was trying to be funny. So, but it's also true, I guess Um, we'll, we'll keep rolling. Um, Like I said, we've got several weeks to come back to that. And let me, let me just wrap all of this up. Um, And I want to talk about love once again, again, the title, fully human love sin and more love. Um, Let's finish by talking about love once again. And I think the love of God is expressed in First John uh, chapter 2, the first couple of verses, in, in some really powerful ways. Follow along with me, if you will. My little children, and, and by the way, I, I love that this is the way John talks to the people that he's writing to in First John. Because we have to imagine he's an old guy by this point. He has seen a lot. But his relationship to his church is a personal one. These are children. Um, these are that kind of intimate and close friendship and relationship. My little children, I'm writing writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours only, for the whole world. This is another one of those passages that I hear uh, uh, my Calvinist friends, or at least the people that they read, say things like, Well, when it says the sins of the whole world, it means the whole world of the elect or the whole world of the people who are chosen. And I'm just thinking, that's painful what you're trying. I mean, it's not just the, in my opinion, bad theology, but it's painful just the uh, logic that you're having to apply to that sentence to try to make it say something that it doesn't say. Something it doesn't say. It says... He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I don't know what all the implications of that are, except to say, when it comes to sin, Jesus dealt with it in his own body, in his own life, in his own uh, experience of being God. He dealt with it before any of us did it. You see, when we read 1 John, it says he's the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, the our right there is not us. We're the whole world. It's kind of like at the end of the uh, passage that, uh, that Joe read for us from, uh, from the Gospel of John about Thomas and appearing to Christ. And Jesus proclaims, blessed are you who see and believe, but blessed are those who who do not see and yet believe. Jesus is speaking to and about us. He's blessing us because we have believed because of that testimony, that word. So God's love is demonstrated. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John then takes that farther and says, his death was the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. When we sin, we have someone advocating on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's standing up and he's standing in our place. And what's more is the fact that Jesus does this without our even asking him. Jesus does this apart from our awareness. And he does it for all. Christians, for good reasons and for bad ones, as I've mentioned already, tried, we try to determine who is in and who's out. Who would be saved and who would not be saved. I think one reassurance that we have in today's passage is that no one needs to go to hell. Why is this? Because Jesus' sacrifice extends beyond what we might think. It extends to everyone. As I've said a million times already, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In that little word, world, is the word cosmos, cosmos, everything, all of creation. In Christ, provision has been made for all. Forgiveness has been extended to all. The sentence of our sin has been declared by the righteous one, the judge, and the sentence has been fulfilled by the same judge. Christ is the judge who is himself judged on our behalf. He is the sacrifice, he is the altar, and he is the one making the sacrifice. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And I'm going to end with this because the Apostle Paul should have ended with it because it's a benediction, but it shows up in chapter 11 of Romans. He's, uh, you know, like only two-thirds of the way through. I like to tell him what he should have done. Um, But these are Paul's words in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him, to receive a gift in return. For from him and through him and to him are all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.